it's not doing you any favors to go bankrupt and to right. everybody in your market. Just don't be that guy. The same reason we put ceramic granules on shingles to fight off the UV rays. They put, you know, slag, which is little stones on the hot asphalt roof to protect the asphalt from the sun. If I can't see every piece of wood that's underneath the roof that I'm proposing to go on top of, then I can't, you know, in good faith, warranty that job. Hey, how's it going? It's Tim Brown, and this is the Hook Better Leads Podcast. And today I have Kevin O'Donnell of O'Donnell Roofing on today. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Tim. And we're going to be talking about all types of things. Customer service. Um, is the customer always right? Subcontractors and how to get better results from them. But I want to start with a little bit of your story. Um it sounds like your family has been doing this for a while. Talk to me about that. Yeah, man. So, um, you know, as you know, I'm the fourth generation owner of the company. Um, it wasn't always clear that this is what I was going to do for a living. But uh, inevitably, when I, by the time I was 25, I made the, the decision to stick with it. Um, so the story for O'Donnell Roofing goes all the way back to 1924, or I should say like 1923, 24, when my great-grandfather um, started a company in West Philadelphia. And of course, you know, back then roofing was a lot different than it was, than it is today. Um, we can buy a lot of the materials that he used to have to custom make in house. Right. So he had a sheet metal shop at, uh, around 54th and Lansdowne Ave in West Philadelphia. And, you know, he, he did a lot of, uh, hot asphalt roofing, uh, a lot of like, uh, custom sheet metal work, cornice work, you know, obviously made their own gutters and downspouts and, uh, he didn't get too much into the into like the slate and the cedar work because it was more in the city. But uh, eventually, that's what our, my company would get into. Uh, so we have still have his ledgers from the twenties, which are really cool because it outlines all of his clients, and they're all at city addresses: fifty fourth and Lansdowne, fifty fourth and and Market. And like you can see it all. You can see what the client uh, purchased, the service they purchased, uh, a repair or a new roof. And the pricing is hysterical because it's, well, I got to hear what was a roof back then. So some of the roofs I can get it for you, but some of the roofs were like 10, $12. Oh uh, like, my so that God. would be like a coating. There would be like a new roof coating was like 200 what bucks. Year was this? this is 1924. So it depends on what they were doing. Like a, how $12 was like, how much was a dollar? So that's for like a, just like a top coat of hot asphalt and like downspouts of repairs. A lot of the repairs in there were like a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. Like a new roof roof was like a couple hundred bucks. Um, so, so yeah, it's pretty cool. So it's saying here that a dollar in 1924 is, was worth 1759. So man, so even though with inflation, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. That so is like the roofs. So a new roof as we know it today was about 200 bucks. So, and then, so like downspout repairs, they're like, you know, 50 cents, a dollar, $3. Um, yeah, it's real cool. So like that ledger goes all the way up to like the war. Um, so, you know, right when World War II started is kind of where the ledger stopped. So there's a, and then by the time my grandfather took over, <clears throat> around 1950, that's when the books picked up again. So we're missing a section in our history, right, right around World War, World War II, and uh, didn't really register to me as to why we're missing it until I took a step back and realized it's because of the war. And uh, 
So, yeah, so that's what my great grandfather did. And like, we still have a lot of his original tools and equipment. Did he and, go and, off to the war or just like get involved with other stuff? Yeah, the... I think he was too old. Um, but he got into other things. And like, roofers back then weren't just doing roofing. So, he was servicing uh, coal and oil burners in the winter, right? So, that's what they did to supplement um, the income for when they couldn't work outside. So, they were as much, um, and my grandfather did that too. Christmas lights. So not yeah. as cool. Nah, no Christmas lights. <laughs> no, the, uh, but okay. and then my, my grandfather did that too. He uh, they'd service oil burners and coal burners in the winter months. Okay, so before we get to like dad and stuff like that, any other stories from back in the day? I gotta hear if there's any. If you have any crazy stories of interesting. So the crazy stories start. So like I, I don't know much about my great grandfather other than that. Um, you know, he was well-known and well-liked in the, in the neighborhood and there weren't many roofers around back then. Right. So, um, and roofing again, was just a lot different what he was doing. Um, my grandfather, again, I don't have much, many stories from him. He wasn't, he was more of like a business man in that, um, you know, he was, I don't think he was real big on like the quality aspect as much as just getting the work done. So like when my father and his friends all became 16, 17 years old, he had an army of guys working for him, like under my father. So he was able to train my dad and then he relied on my father to get the workers in. And, uh, you know, at that point, my grandfather was like subcontracting all his hot roofing. Um, you know, my father was doing a lot of vinyl. I mean, a lot of aluminum siding and asphalt shingles had made their way into the market. And, uh, so unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot. My dad could probably tell you some things, but the, you know. Do you know when asphalt shingles started? Sorry, I'm making. I'm letting you be my history guide today. Yeah, I think in the '40s they were first introduced, um, some variation of it, and then you know they caught popularity. Um, like cedar shingles and slate were still rather you know inexpensive. I guess I'd say, I guess you'd say compared to today's standards back then. But it was definitely in like you know the '40s. I think the first uh iteration of an asphalt shingle they were like real asphalt shingles right these things are like 90 percent oil last 50 years they were a quarter inch thick um and that's you know right around they were still doing hot asphalt roofing oh my god yeah so some of them and we still tear them off today they're almost you know they're real thick real heavy um some had like real pretty designs like a lot of diamond shaped um shingles and like the slate looking shingles there's all this stuff that you see today there was some form some version of it back then with the exception of the laminated architectural shingles they didn't really they didn't get into that until i don't know probably in the you know 70s 80s they were still using three tabs so you know early 90s i guess is when the architecturals really came to market and became the norm okay seven so 70s 80s you're saying before that three tabs so why do people have three tabs like because well, i like like i think i have a three tab and it seems fine to me but like yeah, I, no, they're they're fine a lot of it's aesthetic and um you know again the the composition of asphalt shingles from 50 years ago to today are you know the quality is just far different right it's today there's a lot of organic fillers in the material of course they counteract that the, the little amount of oil that are in the products with um, a, like a, a composition of fillers and organic fillers and adding copper content to the granules. And there's all these technological advances in shingle manufacturing when back then it was pretty basic. It's an asphalt base with ceramic granules to protect it from the sun. And, um, you know, as the price of oil went up through the years, 
um, they started removing it from the composition of these shingles. And, you know, that's why you see a lot of all, uh, moss and algae growth and all sorts of things on these roofs that weren't really like, happening as much, you know, back 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we still see it to today when we're tearing off multiple layers of roof, right? We get to learn about the history of the building just by, you know, I've done jobs where I've torn off five, six, seven layers of roofing, like steep roofing, not like flat roofs where it's more or less normal in the city to have that. Um, but you'll get to, you'll tear off a architectural shingle with a three tab below it, with a three tab below it, with an original asphalt shingle from the fifties below that, with the original cedar roof below that. Right. Uh, and that's where I got who the- says, Who says layovers don't- yeah. <laughs> Hey, that's, that's history right there. So thanks for the layovers. That was my, that's what I tell my clients now is that it's my generation that's tasked with removing all this shit that my father's generation and my grandfather's generation just nailed right on top. That's so funny. Cause like, why? Like we can, like, it's such a, like a thing to look down on layovers, yeah. but obviously for years and years, it like was mm -hmm. fine. So yeah. and the question is, does it leak? You know, so like... <laughs> part of the success with that, too, in the past is they hand nailed everything. So everything was hand nailed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was my dad. It was a it was a daily occurrence for him to show up to a cedar roof, nail on horse feathers where the exposure line of the shingles real fat. And they put on these. It's a tapered wedge almost that's about three inches wide. The width, you know, they came in four foot lengths that you put underneath the butt of the shingle to flatten it out more. So they'd show up with bundles of horse feathers, nail them on, then nail a three-tap shingle right on top. And they always had that cedar base, right, which um, could absorb trace amounts of water. It performed sure. real well against, um, you know, like heat rising and vapor rising in attics, right, why we ventilate roofs. The cedar would perform real well against that. And so there's a lot of reasons why those roofs lasted a long time. And, uh, yeah, but a, a lot of the... A lot of the success with that was the fact they hand nailed it. Um, these the gun nails and layovers, these guys just blow right through the shingles with with the guns, even on a non layover. So it's um, you know it's all goes stems back to quality um, and you know and workmanship in that in that regard. But um, yeah, no no more layovers though. You know. I know, but tell us why we don't do, like why does it really matter? Because like people get up in arms. Does it really matter? So in a lot of homes, you know, if so that my criteria for a layover these days is pretty, pretty simple. It has to be an up and over roof, meaning no, no valleys or dormers or anything where you have step flashings or um, a chimney flashing is OK, because it, there's not siding on the chimney that you'd have to dismantle to get proper flashings in there. Um, the the big thing with me with the layer is if I can't see every piece of wood that's underneath the roof that I'm proposing to go on top of, then I can't, you know, in good faith, warranty that job because, um, you know, again, we primarily use nail guns, right? Um, you know, to have you could do it if you hand nailed it and you'd be able to feel if you were nailing through rotted wood or something where you it'd be a red flag. But you just can't speak to what's underneath those shingles. And additionally, like, you know, my guys will have 20 squares of roof off on the ground starting to clean up in an hour, hour and a half. So it's I just look at it that way um, in the sense that, you know, 
the the tear off um sure it's dangerous and there's a lot into it but i think there's just a lot of value in doing a proper roof system from scratch every time okay so let's get into like your dad took over you said 1980-ish yeah so he was working for my grandfather so he had graduated high school in 1972, at which point he was like already a foreman for working summers. Um, but he started full time with my um, with my uncle and several other friends of his working for my grandfather um, all the way up to, you know, 1980. It was like January of 1980, where my grandfather just turned around and said to my dad, you know, it's all yours. I'm done. And just, you know, threw it on him that, you know, he had to figure it out. My dad learned a lot of lessons in business that you know, I fortunately had my father to teach me. He didn't really have that out of my grandfather. So he was kind of just like thrown to the wolves to figure it out. And you know, like, uh, this is why like private equity, when they purchase companies, like a lot of people are like, oh, that'll be my moment. And then I can just get the F out. Well, there should be overlap, ideal scenario. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's overlap because like from old ownership to new ownership, whether it's generational or whether it's private equity purchasing, they yep. want to have two to five, like they'll, they want a couple of years because sure, the right. company is worth more yep. with transitions because yep. then you keep everything consistent. You don't have any, like you have less problems. So it's mm -hmm. like transitions are better when they're longer, I guess, yeah. in lots of situations. That's why they typically want you three years, right? After I've been approached by private equity. Yeah, and I was say, Kevin's heard this, this talk. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's like a three-year thing, which makes sense. I mean, that's their insurance policy to have, you know, the guy who's been running the company but for so long. It's like, I'll just keep it. Thanks. Yeah. I feel yeah, like <laughs> where I was at, the whole private equity thing, that's a whole other hour yeah. conversation there. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, so when my father got involved in the uh, early 80s, he he got into doing some, um, he was doing a lot of hot, hot roofing. That was his his thing, you know, he, that's, and that's what I grew up smelling, right? When I would wait, as, as long as I can remember when I was a kid, going outside of my house or even in my kitchen as a kid, I smelled hot asphalt growing up. That was them warming up the kettle. And they were crazy back then, right? So they, they fire up the kettle at my house right where he had two trucks you know just always a small shop they fire it up there and drive it down the road warming up like heating up by the time they get to the job it's like so fucking it's so dangerous it's crazy and that was just the norm and i just i don't know i didn't i didn't think anything of it it was it was normal to me but um at a at a point um so he did a lot of hot roofing and through in the 80s and he obviously, he obviously did shingle roofing a lot of aluminum siding were they sorry is this the where they're brooming or like they're yeah, kind of like, like a yeah yeah Mop. so they and then so in this and where where we live uh philadelphia it's a lot of row homes in philadelphia right <clears throat> so that's where my grandfather and great-grandfather did a lot of work um and then you know when my grandfather took over he moved to upper darby which is a suburb of philly where there are also a lot of row homes and so that's what they that's what they did um when my father took over in 1980 he, he moved to havertown which is a little even further from the city but it's we're right there we're five minutes from philly from the you know the first, the closest point in west philly so there's a lot of row homes right they all have flat roofs on them and you know hot asphalt roofs are like some of the best roofs ever they're you know they're in like impact resistance to it to a sense when the sun gets on them especially like an old pitch roof you know, like it's it's a self-healing roof. Once it warms up, the the hot asphalt essentially, you know, 
like debris melts and then it'll, it can close in any voids and, uh, and there's all different levels to hot hot asphalt roofing you know a three ply roof a four ply roof um you know slag was a big thing it was a byproduct from the wars when they're mining for iron ore so they have um you know the byproduct is these slag they're little stones that they didn't know what to do with it after the you know during uh manufacturing for the war and they were perfect for roofing um for like UV defense, right? So the same reason we put ceramic granules on shingles to fight off the UV rays, they put, you know, slag, which is little stones on the hot asphalt roof to protect the asphalt from the sun. So the slag also kept the snow and ice up off of the asphalt roof enough that it could melt and drain. So um, just like an awesome roof design that was, you know, just like anything else, right? It's they slate roofing, cedar roofing, original hot asphalt roofing, they were the best. Well, you're and not then, doing things like that now, right? Like the, are you, are, are you? Nah, I have never, um, when I was a kid, I was on a couple hot jobs just with my dad in the truck, you know, so I saw it all happen, but we, we got out of that. Um. Hey guys, this is Bruce Baidon. And when dealing with insurance companies, you definitely need an expert by your side. So if you need someone to walk in, hold your hands throughout the insurance process. Not really, Max. Build the experts, supplement experts. You can use my hand. Pat, one of my dad's, uh, you know, roofers, carpenters, friend of mine, he, he's a couple years older than me. He was on a couple hot jobs, but I don't know that we've touched it since uh, probably like 2000, 99, 2000 is when he shut it down. But that's, uh, you know, so like through the 80s, that's what my dad did a lot of. Um, he also did, he got into elastomeric coatings at the very beginning. A product called Belzona was one of the first of its kind. Um, so he did a monster job at Longwood Gardens, um, which is, you know, a nationally recognized, um, like horticultural center almost with, you know, these elaborate gardens and like they have these huge um, sh structures like atrium roofs that, were all glass with steel framing that had water issues. So he he gone in and done some massive projects there. Um, what, that, what's your um, sorry? When did you take over the business? And what did you um, you said or like what what year was that? So I came back in the business in 2010. Um, and so by the way, you'd worked for it previously. You said maybe I'm not a roofer. You yeah. So so again, like summers when I was. Uh, Real quick circle back where my father ended up getting into was historic restoration. So he started oh, doing a lot of yeah. slate and cedar and mm. uh, more elaborate type roofing projects, largely service, but also some big, real big projects. And that was what I did when I worked for him. Okay. So, um, you know, so when I, from when I was 12, 13, 14, 15 summers, I worked for him cleaning up trash on the jobs. Um, Obviously, always thought it was real cool to be up on the roof working, um, was too young to do so. And then when I was 15, um, you know, I got got my hands dirty a little bit more on jobs again, just summers. And then, you know, it was 18, 19. I worked for him. And then I went to I moved to Vermont for a few years, mainly just snowboard and ski and hanging out. I went to community college up there, actually. And, uh, you know, I always had like I was always working with my hands, but you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. And, you know, my mom did not think for a second that I was going to come home and work for my dad. But so 2010, I made a decision to start working for him again. I moved back home. 
um, you know, immediately, you know, I was already pretty much a mechanic having watched them. I used to stand on ladders while my uncle worked all day long for summers. And I would just stand there and watch, go get him the, the red snips, go get him this, go get him that. And just learning. And in 2010 is when I started getting on the job. And, you know, I was a foreman by the end of that year. Um, and then like 20, 2012, 13 is when I got it more into sales and started to develop the business more. Um, so like currently we do as much revenue in a, in a week as my father did in a year. Right. So, and it was, yeah. Oh brother, so, that's incredible. Yeah. And you guys yeah. have grown like headcount by a lot, right? The last. Yeah. So my dad, um, he always had, he had like eight to 10 employees through the eighties and nineties. And at the end of the nineties, early two thousands, he scaled back to just like two or three guys, like his key foreman guys. Um, he was sick of employees and all that came with it. Right. And of course, in the, you know, that was an, that's another thing to mention. That's really, that's real big is that in the nineties, um, you know, there's a couple companies, one company in particular locally that was just undercutting everybody in the shingle market. And, you know, of course the business ended up going bankrupt, the guy ended up going to jail, but my father would have jobs sold and show up to drop off the permit and someone's there doing the roof and they didn't tell him. And he, and they finally get to hold him. They said, Larry, you know, so-and-so roofing, they were a thousand dollars less than you, Larry. I had to go with them. So my dad was like, screw this. I'm done. I'm going into the specialty world of historic restoration. So uh, that's hey, what he did. You guys watching this, don't be that guy. Don't be yeah. that. Like, it's not, it's not doing you any favors to go bankrupt and to right. everybody in your market. Just don't be that guy. Go get your own business. Mm -hmm. and, and like, slowly raise your price to make sure that you can actually offer customer service. Correct. So you can actually have a real <laughs> business. It's not people. They don't realize just because just they're getting money in their bank does not mean that they're actually making any money. Right. So like the, just a reminder. Don't. Uh, absolutely. It's and like, it's, you know, and that's something that we talk about now too. It's like, you know, my company, we know, we know exactly what it takes to, to do a job and to stay in business. Right. And to honor warranties and to be there when our clients call, be able to have someone there in 20 minutes. You know, there's a lot of this value that is tough to, um, sh you know, share with the world. That's, uh, you know, it's just inherent to us. It's just what we do, but we've many roofing companies we've seen come and go. Um, just even when I've been paying attention, let alone since my father's been in business, um, countless, you know, and, uh, yeah. So in the early 2000, yeah, so that happened. Uh, I got, I got back involved in like 2010, 2012, 2013, I started doing sales and building the revenue. I think like the first million dollar year was, I don't know, 2015, 2016. And then I had 50% growth every year since then until this, this year when we grew up, we grew 30% as opposed to 50%. Um, but you know, the big thing with me, it's always been quality and customer service through all of that. And my skill set, I always did a lot of research. Um, I'm proficient in commercial roofing, slate roofing, cedar roofing. Like we could talk about each one of them for hours. Right. And, uh, read all the books, uh, the smack, the book, you know, Joe Jenkins slate roof Bible is a great book, um, for any of those that want to get into slate roofing. Um, and you know, so, but 95% of our market is asphalt roofing, right? Most houses are. We have the main line of Philadelphia right down the street where there's a lot of big slate roof homes with slate roofs, you know, very large four, five, six, seven thousand square foot homes that we're accustomed to working on. Um, we, we, 
take some time on the the history piece, which I I think you really did a good job mixing mixing the family history with the history of roofing, which I think, yeah. frankly, we covered in some, you know, yeah, good. We've been you know, in business through the whole duration of the industry, really. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Which is incredible. So I want to do a little bit of speed round because this is normally like a half an hour, 40 minute podcast. So maybe a couple minutes per, but I'm going to cover yeah. some other topics with you, yeah. which I think are interesting to you. So employer employee versus customer happiness. You were talking about how when you're the guy, when you're doing the work, when you're selling it and on the job site and whatnot, it's kind of easier to make sure everything goes right. So over time, you mentioned sometimes the challenge is people are struggling to have that same level of customer service. So what have you been experiencing as far as those challenges? Because I think people can relate. And how do you think about like employee versus customer happiness? So, you know, it was obviously a lot easier to maintain customer happiness when I was selling the jobs, orchestrating the jobs and on the jobs, right? So as the company, you know, as the company's grown and I've had to put a, you know, a salesman in place, my first salesman, um, my first production manager, you know, it's, you know, instead of that one point of contact that has all the answers right now, they're dealing with multiple people, right? So finding the consistency through the process um, is all to the benefit of the client, right? And to achieve that, you know, we have to go through extra measures on our end. And it's a, it's a challenge to ensure that everyone's on the same page, that the expectations that were set are going to be realized at the end. Um, so, you know, it largely comes down to communication amongst ourselves, which is easier said than done, um, especially when you're scaling and you have 10, 15 jobs going on a day. Um, and it's, you know, routine meetings and just, you know, every other word out of my mouth at these meetings anymore is customer service. And, you know, fortunately, my production manager, Christina, she's all over it, right? She always has been customer centric, right? But it's really, um, she she really em embraces that as like the most important part of her job. And then, you know, getting that point across to the to the project managers on site and even the foreman on the cruise, right? It's, you know, it, it, it's training, right? And it takes time to get them to realize it. Um, and, you know, I can just tell like what, what hit me and where I knew that it was kind of an issue here is that, you know, we grew 50% year over year for five, six years straight, right? My marketing budget was nothing. It was 1% of revenue, but I was still growing. And that was because of my, <clears throat> you know, a customer service, right? And everything that I put into it. And, you know, now when I when I don't see that growth, which I still think is attainable because you're still dealing with more clients, if you can keep them happy and get referrals out of them, you should still grow at a steady clip. Um, you know, I just kind of noticed that the refer the projects, the percentage of work that we do that was referral based, um, you know, went down incrementally and it was more marketing based. Right. So you'd think if you're doing 15 jobs a day compared to five, six years ago when I was doing three jobs a day that you would just have this wildfire of, you know, uh, referrals and phone calls and this and that. And, and we still do that, fortunately. You know the numbers on that. That's that's super important, right? And yeah, they, yeah. notice what it is on percentage wise, like such a big thing to, to and, focus. And there's on. obviously red flags along the way, right? When the, you know, there's a client that's unhappy for so-and-so reason, you have to figure out why, what happened and how to address it. 
And... I was actually going to ask you, sorry, people always give me shit because I interrupt, but I, I yeah, apologize. I am, I'm kind of like trying to keep the clip tight and I know it's annoying sometimes. But my question to you is like, okay, so if somebody's coming in to the office and you know that there's a, a, a mad customer mm-hmm. and somebody else is dealing with that person on the phone, mm-hmm. and but you know what's going on mm-hmm. and you know your team kind of messed up a little bit. Mm-hmm. A, a chunk like how yeah. do you how do you deal with that like are you good at dealing with that like or does it f- make you really anxious or frustrated like i'm just curious like how you would handle that in that situation yeah so that's a really good question so you know i've never been hard on my staff right because you know they're only as good as how good I am at training them to a degree. It may be tough to tough to say, but you know, I know it was there's no never any malicious intent with right with what they do. If they forgot to do something, forgot to mention something, um, a lot of things come up where they're we have to replace all the plywood on the roof. And it wasn't explicitly warned to them on the front end and it's thousands of dollars. So, you know, fortunately knowing what it takes to run a business, right? A lot of, you know, what makes people happy in a lot of cases is financial benefit, right? Discounts. And just working with people because we're humans too, right? And that's like one thing that I've been telling my people, telling my people is put yourself in their shoes, right? And how would you feel if this happened to you? And what would your expectations be to make you happy? So just put yourself in people's shoes is a big part of it. And, you know, I'm not in this to make people upset or happy. I'm in here to provide a service and to be the best at what we do. Um, but no one's perfect. We make mistakes and we learn from them and get better. And I know through the years, especially the last three, four years, my team has learned a lot. And is one in, in like one specific incident that involved two people, all 12 of my management team, they learned a lesson from that. So we don't so it doesn't happen again. And as far as, you know, appeasing the customer and making them happy, it's it's easier said than, than done. Right. For certain. Everybody's different. Right. So. All we can do is do the best we can and stand by our work and, you know, be fair and reasonable. And that's it. Is the customer always right? That's a good one. So if you ask some people, they'd say the customer's always wrong, like laughingly. Right. But, you know, to a large extent, um, people say buyers are liars. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, says the customer always right. Depends on what what you're talking about, right? From a technical standpoint, no, they're not always right. They're hardly ever right. From a customer service standpoint, um, yeah, I think that they kind of are always right. You know, um, I think that the theory of what they're talking about is right. Maybe the specifics are not. You know, and that's tough tough to relate to. But it's you know, if if someone says, "Well, I think you did a poor job of preparing me for this," you know, they're right. But if they said you did uh, you did prepare me for this, but I didn't. I didn't know it was going to be $6,000. They're, they're kind of wrong because we, we, we did tell them that in some form and they just didn't hear it because they've selected hearing. So it's, oh, it's yeah. a touchy one. Because if buyers are liars, there's a little bit of like, if I calmly and briefly stated that there may be um, decking that needs to be replaced. Mm-hmm project and there's things that will come up potentially and if once we tear off the shingles that yep. may need to happen but they'll tell you they didn't hear it potentially yeah and you know, ultimately as an owner our our instinct is to go okay yeah. like, give them whatever like i don't know sometimes i throw money at problems as sure. a business owner like i'm like okay fix it with money 
Yep. You know, yep. like it's scary though. Is obviously your team probably doesn't feel they can enable to do that. Yep. Um, so there's just a lot of complexity there, and I think there is not too. It's probably not too much to say there are homeowners that are trying that are trying to get the best deal, and sometimes yep. they're unethical. Yep. Like that is a real thing. That's, that is a real thing for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've experienced it and known it firsthand, you know, and it's, again, it's back to that. A lot of times it's back to that selective hearing bit. And he said, he said, she said, but that's why we have contracts too. Right. Right. Um, right. And if you don't have it on your contract, maybe you could, right? right. Like clear, clarify that. And that's where I say like, too, it's like, I may not be at fault for this, but I'm going to take responsibility for this. Yep. So I'm going to take responsibility for making sure that the next prospect hears it more than one way potentially, and that there's less likely to be a miscommunication, which I do take weird months of responsibility for miscommunications, even if it's stated, but only briefly, right? Like it's, that's the toughest part about stuff. Par for being a business, a good business owner. You know what I mean? Cause there's a lot of guys that I, I just hear horror stories. I've been hearing them for years about guys you know, doing a roof, then the people selling the house, the new homeowners call because the roof leaked and them saying, oh, the warranty's not transferable, you're out. Like, that's some crazy stuff, right? And it's it's kind of, it's more common than you think. And it's, you know, again, back to the experience of being in business and knowing what it takes. Like, yeah, occasionally you have to throw money at problems to make them go away, or you have to take responsibility for something that isn't it's a gray area of whether you did wrong or, or they didn't hear and you know but at the same name at the same time your name and your brand is everything top rep we're doing top rep then it's great training so you got to have that defined sales process check tokyo specifically i don't understand how people make it with a defined sales process as an established company but just starting out you definitely need to have that because they need to know like and trust you through the whole process mm-hmm in order to give you money somebody told me they said if i have a six thousand dollar problem but i have six thousand dollars do i have a problem right (laughs) exactly and that's a good point i mean we just had it the other day man where i um i did a a roof i don't mean to, to keep talking whatever i did a roof like three or four years ago we added ventilation to the roof and i overlooked the fact that they're roof their attic insulation was uh i don't know about a fifth of what code requires right and above their bathroom there was very little insulation so they call us back because there's mold on the underside of the plywood that we installed you know right above the 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 intake vent that we installed and you know i could have easily just said no i'm not doing that but what i did is i ate it i replaced the man's roof and told him that this is the last time you need to get your insulation up to code and I could have easily just, yeah, I mean, it cost me five, $6,000, right? No one does that shit. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, express and that I afford, I was, I'm afforded the ability to do that for my clients. And, sure. and that's, that's a positive of scaling partly too, right? Because if you were a tiny company and the, the, yeah, right. That is a beautiful thing about scaling is that we don't have to worry so much about little yep. like customer service money problems. Whereas I, I've somebody posted the other day on Facebook and it was like a long text diatribe from a customer. It's like, one, don't post that on your Facebook, but <laughs> like, what? 
yeah. uh, negative interaction with the customer. But anyways, and he was like trying to get sympathy from roofers. Roofers aren't going to give you that much. Well, some, some will refer you, but the point is like not marketing for other roofers. Okay, guys, like focus, yep. focus on your ideal customer when you're posting on Facebook and stuff too. Um, but in this situation, it was just kind of like, that probably wouldn't be a big deal if you were a little bigger, man. Like it is a beautiful thing as you scale. And then I'm not, not mad at small business. I've been a tiny, tiny business, one guy, whatever. Yep. But like, as it goes on, there are beautiful things about being able to handle this stuff with a little yep. bit of money because you've, you've got it like that. You, you have customers, yep. you, you, you're not focused on one job. Yep. I get it. Every job should be profitable, but one job every once in a while, you can handle it not being profitable. If you, it's expected, it is what you it don't is. Let your customer service be like a problem. That's right. the thing. It's like biggest thing is PR almost. Like just don't mm -hmm. let it become a problem. Problem. Yeah, and I've had bad Facebook posts about me, right, uh, and about the company. And a lot of times, many instances, you know, again back to the customer being right. Like the customer just wasn't right, right, and and like the worst ones that I have, and it's. You know, maybe one in a thousand, but we do 500 roofs a year and, you know, however many repairs, right? We're dealing with a thousand different people every year. So, you know, having me having done this for the last 10 years, being pretty into it and to have five, six, seven bad reviews, it's, you know, it's like a, a 0.01%, right? So it's like, right. I'm doing the best you can. Um, but it's a shame because you, you know, all the people that we did make happy, it's tough to get reviews out of them sometimes yeah. Yeah. to really, to really balance it. But Again, now, like you, you said, I mean, that's the beauty of having some scale and some size is that I can look at a problem that cost me $6,000 that I could fight and I could be that guy and, and win in court, right? I always put myself as, as the judge, what would happen in a courtroom, you know? And in these instances, like I would be fine, right? It's just because I'm not responsible for, for that. But I take responsibility because I didn't give them the fair warning years ago because of my lack of knowledge, I guess. And I wasn't paying attention to that. Now we do. Now everyone in my company does. Right. So it's learning and it's just growing pains. So it's a six thousand dollar lesson that is going to save my client's headache down the road. So, um, you know, it's a just, to look at problems There's a beautiful way to look at problems. And every single one that you get through, you have to yeah. you do learn. We do learn. And if it's painful, it's even more of a lesson. Right. I'm going to yeah. do a couple other real quick rapid fire. How do you get better results from subcontractors? I know this is something that you've had to work on as well. Yeah. So again, um, you know, I talk about it with my team all the time and the fact that and I tell my clients all the time too, is that, you know, all of my subcontractors, they work for me full time. They don't work for anyone else. Right. Sure. The, the owner of the subcontracting company may have other crews that work for other people, but I don't bring on an additional crew until I can keep them busy all the time. The reason I do that is for scheduling, ease of scheduling, and the main thing is quality control and consistency, right? Where I can tell my client, uh, I'm going to have Fabio do this job, right? Fabio is a sub, a foreman, but he, he worked for me for eight years every day. And I feel comfortable saying that to people. And I don't even tell clients that I use subcontractors because with us, it's a formality and payment, right? As we scale, and that's where I'm at the point now where... You know, the foreman of each of my crews, maybe there was four crews originally, two roofing, two siding, and I worked with them. I would be on the job with each crew for two hours a day, making sure that the counter flashes were done right, making sure 
the basics, the fundamentals were done right. And I worked with them and got them dialed in. And as we grew, I would split that four-man crew into two two-man crews and, and fill in with a new trash guy or something. So I always grew from within. And now that I've committed to scaling and growing this company <clears throat> uh, much, much bigger than I, you know, anyone would have ever thought, um, you know, quality and consistency is, is critical to what we sell and provide, right? So, um, you know, it's training, right? It's like, trust the processes. If you, if you look at anything business uh, oriented online, it's all about process. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, has to do with personnel and training. And you got to have subcontractors that are willing to learn, that don't think they know everything and that are, you know, willing to put in the work, meaning go out of their way to spend time with, um, you know, like me, like I'm building a training center uh, right now. We should break ground in two, three weeks, waiting on a permit. And, you know, I have this mock, this idea in my head of what I'm going to do. And it's going to be a beautiful thing because I'll be able to get the crews in there and they'll be able to learn from their mistakes on the spot. I'll be able to show them how we do things, be able to get that consistency. And I'm not just talking about how to nail shingles or put in step flashings. I'm talking about some more complicated things too. Um, and not just roofing, siding and trim and everything that goes with what we do, window installation, you name it, where, you know, any new crews that work for me, they, they're going to have to go through a solid day of training with me personally. And also my operations manager, Matt, one of my, my new partners, um, you know, he or I will be working with these new crews because I'm not just going to send the random crew to someone's house, right? You know, I need to be able to vouch for them and tell them that we've, they've been trained and it, for it to be the truth. Um, now it takes a lot of, you know, it's an investment, right? I, you know, it's a six figure investment for me to get this done. But um, the opposite of that, of sending untrained tr crews to people's houses that a lot of contractors do, What's the cost of that over 20 years, right? With callbacks and unhappy clients, that could be an unsurmountable number, right? So investing in back into the business um, in the right areas, um, I think is what is, is, is gonna help you long-term really. And specifically with subcontractors, um, a lot of bad habits out there in the roofing industry, guys putting six nails in the shingles blindly, um, over nailing, under nailing, like the fundamentals are out the window in a lot of cases, right? Um, so it's, 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 it's all comes down to, to training and consistency amongst the people that you are sending to these people's homes. I love it. And I love hearing how people are doing this because I do think that that is part of craftsmanship at a business owner level, like, right? Like yeah, well, I'm, a I'm a craftsman when it comes yeah. to roofing. That's what I did. I loved it. Like yeah. I didn't, I loved being on a roof, man. Like I, I hand nailed, hand nailed cedar shakes on roofs with a smile ear to ear for years. And it was, it was all good. And it's uh, that knowledge is what makes my company so great too. Right. So I don't just, it's not just asphalt shingles and vinyl siding. It's, you know, the carpentry aspect, like our siding jobs, are not just not like siding and capping. They're they're freaking architectural carpentry projects on the outside of these homes in a lot of occasions, right? Where um, you know, what the work we're doing now is gonna be there in 50 years and oh. it's gonna be proper. And it's uh and it's just, you know, goes back to the fact that I was exposed to historic restoration when I was, you know, 15, 16, 20 years old. And, you know, the way they did things a hundred years ago is way better than 90% of the work that's being put out now. So doesn't, um, yeah. doesn't that 
Don't you just want to go back there and just do the work on the roof sometimes, though? Oh, I love it. And I'm actually getting excited for the fact that, you know, over the next few years as uh, the business develops and, you know, my marketing team is awesome. My production team is awesome. Uh, my sales team is awesome. At some point, like I'm afforded to actually go and train guys. And that's the that's close enough for me to actually doing the work, right? Where I still get to get my hands dirty and show people, you know, my skill set and teach them. And that's, uh, yeah, I, th I think that's something I've never done before to that extent. Um, I always did it on site in certain circumstantial situations, but now just to have a comprehensive, you know, teaching, uh, you know, location where I can, it's going to be fun. You know, oh, it's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. It's, I just always find it funny how it's like, as a, you kind of work your way up to being out of the day to day. And then some people think that that's like paradise or something. And you're nope. like, Oh, it would be really nice to like, just do the work. Yeah. After because this stuff is complex and kind of um, obnoxious, to be real, like leadership yep. and like dealing with people yep. is is difficult. So, and I, I think most people can understand that, but it is it's like a kind of craftsmanship to be yes. able to do that at some level. And I I think if you were a real craftsman, which is it's really cool, really cool, then it's just applying trying to apply those same principles, just what with the mechanisms of a business, right? Yep. Like I think yep. that like. And if you're and if you're a great salesperson, it's like selling the vision and se yep. and selling good practice and yeah. in your team, you know, like I think that there's just a lot of transfer. But mm -hmm. you know, I I really I just want to say I really appreciate you coming on today and giving us, frankly, Kevin, we got a history lesson. Yeah, nah, man, thank you for having me on. I I love it. Roofing's what I've you know, it's literally a passion of mine. I say it all the time, and it sounds weird, but I'm I couldn't be any luckier to have, uh, you know, had the story to tell and the generational thing. It's pretty cool. Right. And it's something that I wasn't really, you know, 15 years ago, it wasn't really something that I was sure about. Um, and then, you know, fortunately 2010, I made the decision and I, you know, I've, I've zero regrets. It's, it's, uh, it's awesome. I just, I do think that the industry needs a little, uh, improvement though. I think it's gone south in a lot of instances where people are, missing the missing the point and craftsmanship is kind of going out the window and uh it's all about money and private equity and who can do the most volume and who can be the lowest price and um you know it's uh it's tough man roofing's not not easy and you know private equity tries to simplify it with um you know some better than others right there's always the, the good people um but like they try to simplify it with scaling roofing and uh you know, I think there's a systematic way to do it. And I think a lot of guys are missing the mark and they just want to sell and sub and sell and sub. And they're going to leave a, you know, path of disaster behind them in a lot of cases. Um, so. Kevin, I just want to say this. Like, I think sometimes people in, in multi-generational businesses have a little bit of a complex. I'm going to say that sometimes it happens. You earn this shit. You, yeah. you grew it fast. How, how big you've grown it is yeah. undeniable. You are a badass. Um, and I also just want people to know, like, no matter what, growing a business, if you had, like, a little step up or whatever, like, it's just hard, dude. Hey, it ain't it's super hard. Like, I swear to God. And, like, I just, I respect what you're doing. I also just wish I could tell multi-generational, like, or people, like, you're you're still doing all the hard stuff. And you would have been able to do it anyways, by the way. Like, and I know you would. It's just happens to be the family trade. So this is where you're at. But like, 
I just wish I could tell people that because I can feel it from them sometimes. And I want to be yeah. not as much you, but I was chatting with somebody this last week as a um, an HVAC service company or whatever. And I wish I could tell them because I could feel the complex. And I'm like, dude, you're you're like past 10 million. Like, yeah. and you you went from one or two or whatever, like literally no one, do, like that's hard as fuck, no matter who right. you are. This is right. hard. This is super hard. And you did it, you know, so much. So I just, I just wish I could help people like get through that. Cause it's like, it's also yeah. cool. It's also cool. I wish I, my, my dad and my brother and sound and lighting. And I do look over there every once in a while. Like, damn, that's, it's cool that they're in a business together, you know, all yeah. that stuff. So. Yeah. yeah I, I do get it. Some, sometimes that people think I was given what I have here and I just kind of laugh because they just don't know. You know yeah. what I mean? They just have no clue. It's like, yeah. I, I got a good name since 1924. My father's the best. He's still with us today. Yeah. He is a godsend for the company to keep it going for 30 years before I got involved. But, um, you know, it's like you said, dude, it's very hard to grow a business and to maintain quality and keep your customers happy. And, uh, you know, but that if that's your focus, it's attainable. And, uh, you know, we're, we're still going. I'm, I'm just getting started, really, dude. I mean, it's yeah. just the beginning. Yeah. Let's keep it going, baby. And hey, by the way, you know, we get like just, I, I mean, I know it's not usually like sales guys or people that don't run a business watching this. I think a lot of people watching this or listening are business owners, but it is just, if you're not a business owner, it is ridiculously hard. And I don't know how to say that in any more of a, like a profound way. It's yeah. just ridiculously hard. And respect to those of you who do, because running a business is so hard and we respect you. We respect you and we think it's amazing. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening to this podcast. And thank you, Kevin, for being on. Thank where can you. people check you guys out? What was that? Sorry. Uh, where can people check you guys out? Uh, check us out at www.odonnellroofingco.com, O-D-O-N-N-E-L-L, roofingco.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram. Um, you know, check out our website. Uh, we just opened a new location in Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Um, one soon to come in Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. So um, we're around. Check us out. we got a lot of cool stuff on our website. And, uh, you know, thanks, Tim, for having me. It's awesome. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. See ya. Bye.